Hello and welcome to The Switch. This is the show where we speak to inspirational people, each of them wildly successful in their own fields, about the big turning points in their lives. I'm G Footit and I'm lucky enough to get the chance to quiz these people about the precise mix of skills, behaviours, traits, drive and sheer grit that gets them to the top of their game. In particular, I'm interested in that pivotal point in their lives, the light bulb moment that propelled them to a new level. I want to drill down into that moment and find out what it was that convinced these remarkable people that they could switch up. But the switch is also about you. And as the series continues to grow, we'll be taking your questions for our guests. Are you content with your life, your career? Are you considering making a switch of your own? Are you maybe looking for a new direction or the motivation to take a step up? Whatever your situation, I hope that you can take inspiration from this show. To fill you in about me, my name is G, and I work at the UK's largest provider of face-to-face financial advice, St James's Place. And I'm involved in their academy, which has so far trained over a thousand individuals to retrain to become financial advisors. These are people from all walks of life who have decided to make a switch of their own. To help inspire others to do the same, no matter what kind of switch you're considering, we're talking to extraordinary leaders in various fields including entertainment, sport, psychology, and in this episode, someone with a unique perspective on both making changes in career trajectory and finding out a way to align personal values and motivation. We've called this episode Mind Over Matter as we explore the strength of mind and focus on goals to deal with setbacks, kicking on, and applying the critical skills acquired in one arena into another. Today's guest is someone with a unique perspective on these things, someone that has developed techniques and strategies that have been tried and tested and refined over two Olympiads into the furnace of elite sport and are applicable to anyone or any profession that is ambitious and hungry for success. Today, I'm joined by now retired Olympic rower turned author, public speaker and communications expert, Annie Vernon. Annie, welcome and thank you so much for taking time to join us on The Switch. Thanks, G. It's great to be here. Annie, we've got lots of fascinating things to discuss today. Your book, Mind Games, your current career path and professional engagements. But of course, you became a household name as an Olympic rower. Could you maybe first tell us a little bit more about your early life and how how you came to that sport? So my early life... I guess, informed the rest of, obviously, your, your values are formed as a child growing up, your family. And I grew up on a, on a small family farm in Cornwall. And, and I think having a farming background, it's one of those things, if you meet another farmer's child, you immediately feel a rapport because you have the same values. You know, it's a life where, you know, if, if there's a problem on the farm, you have to sort it out. You can't call in HR or IT or technical support. You, you just have to crack on and do it. So you become very outcome focused. And I think that's several reasons that led to me led me into a career in sport. But I think once you're in sport, you know, you're drawing on those values all the time because in sport, again, if you're not good enough, you can't, you know, you can't change your body. You can't change that what you've been what you've been born with. You have to just find the resources inside you to attack whatever it is you're doing. I discovered rowing as a teenager um, on a tidal estuary in Cornwall, which is quite a terrifying place to learn to row because you think most rowing boats narrower than your hips. So they're not very stable at all. So you fall in when you're learning. You fall in a lot. And falling in on flat water is one thing, but falling in on water where you're, you know, kind of being pushed down the river at speed into moored boats makes you really keen on not falling in because it's it's quite terrifying. And then I was lucky enough to win a place at Cambridge University where rowing is, you know, it's like a religion up there. It's the biggest sport in the university by a long way. It's also a good place to meet tall men, which was part of my motivation at that point. 
and discovered I was quite good at it. You know, you benchmark yourself against other people in the university and thought, you know, I just want to give this a go and see how, how far I can take it. Wow. So did you have any idea about the ambition to get to the level of performance that you did? I think, of course, when you're young, you don't really think too far into the future, do you? When you're 19, 20, you just know where you are. Um, you think about the next step. So you don't necessarily think about the long term. But certainly, I would look at girls who'd come through the Cambridge system and then gone on to the to the, the British team. At that point, Cambridge had this really strong tradition of sending female rowers who would then go on to the Olympic Games. So I, you know, I knew that kind of pathway existed. I knew the kind of benchmarks I should be hitting. But of course you know everyone has an imposter syndrome you think well why would little old me this you know farming kid from Cornwall why would I be the one who might go on to have a senior career in this but then of course you always break a journey down to little steps I was fortunate enough to have a really great coach who was able to support me and give me the tools I needed um, and then you know found my way onto the British team got qualified for lottery funding and then I was away. Wow. So let's go back a couple of steps. What kind of influences did you have? Were they at home or were there role models that you looked up to to even just get into rowing in the first place? When I was a, when I was a kid, my role models, I mean, this is totally going to age me because you're always aged by your sporting heroes, aren't you? But it was like Sally Gunnell was my hero because she grew up on a farm as well. And I remember watching the Barcelona Olympics when she won her gold. I must have been eight. And I remember watching her and the commentator was saying, she learned to hurdle because she was a hurdler. You probably remember 400 metres hurdle. And the commentator, she learned to hurdle jumping over straw bales on her parents' farm. And I was thinking, that's exactly what I do in the summer. I practice my hurdles for school, jumping over bales. Look at her now. She's on the telly. She's winning the Olympics. And I think it was that first moment where you realise that you, you, you can join the dots, but they're dots. You know, so her dot at eight years old was jumping over straw bales. And there she was at the Olympic Games. So here was I, my dot, eight years old, jumping over straw bales. You think, well, maybe one day, you know, and I think that's the thing. Role models have to, it doesn't matter who they are or what they do, but they have to talk to you in some way. And that's the thing I think you really latch on to, isn't it? And it was something I often bore in mind later on when I started on the fringes of the British rowing team and I was going to, you know, the under 23 world championships. I'd always think I just have to be at my level now. And I'd often link it back to that Sally Gunnell thing of, you know, when she was eight, she was jumping over bales. So I was thinking when I'm a 22-year-old athlete, I haven't got to be as good as the girls who've been doing it for 10 years. Because in 10 years' time, I do need I need to be, but not right now. And I also remember at university, one of the girls who was a senior international at that point, I think she was still involved with the university boat club at Cambridge. I remember she came back for a committee meeting or something, and we went to the pub afterwards. I remember she was standing in the pub, holding her drink, and I remember looking at her forearm and thinking, her forearm is the size of my leg. You know, she was obviously lifting weights three times a week. She was training full time. She was massive. I was thinking, I'm never going to be as good as her. She's she's a huge rapper just standing there in the pub, just fixated on her forearm. Um, and again, I then that evening reflected on when she was my age, she didn't have these massive muscles because she wasn't a full time international. You know, whenever you're young, you've got to remind yourself you haven't got to be everything at first. You know, you, you can have that patience to develop. No, I think that's really good advice. So what was it that took you from hurdling over hay bales to the water? Um, well, I was a typical sporty kid growing up. I'm, you know, like I'm sure loads of listeners are the same. I did every sport I could, but in the 90s in a state school, that was basically netball and hockey. And hockey played on grass as well, which was always kind of slightly crazy hockey because the ball's bouncing everywhere. And we're all just wearing our, our older brother's football boots, which are slipping off and 
So it was total mayhem, but it was so much fun. And because I grew up on a farm, I also had a horse as well. Um, so I, I did all of that. And then when I learned to drive at 17, I thought, I just want to try something different, just meet some new people. You know, I lived in a really small community, so I just wanted to break out, make some new friends. So my, my dad knew the couple who ran the boat club that was, it was quite a long way from where I lived, but it wasn't, you know, it was kind of doable. And he said, why don't you try, why don't you try rowing? You know, you're tall. So every single rower in the world, that's how their career starts. Someone saying, you're tall, you should row. <laughs> As if that's all there is to it. So I started rowing and just found I loved it. Absolutely loved it straight away. And had you grown up by the water, by the sea? Yeah, I grew up by the sea, but very much the sea that you, you couldn't, row, couldn't have rowed on. Yeah. It was the sea that you would surf in yeah. rather than, yeah. you know, try and row on. I love that. So, so back to uni then. How did you manage to juggle both training and also studying? What was that sort of demand on you like? It's tough, isn't it? Well, I'm of the opinion that you can you can really do two things well, and more than that, you're you're not going to do them that well. So, you know, you either choose your sport and your degree, your social life and your degree, or you know, some combination of those three. So, I chose sport and degree. Well, certainly, my coach really supported me in also having a social life. You know, I remember him saying to me once, "Turn up hungover. It's fine. You're a student. You're meant to have a good time." But I, I loved my degree. I was really focused on that. And I loved my rowing. So I guess it was the social life that took a bit of a hit. You made some sacrifices. Well, that really resonates with me because I've just finished studying myself. So full-time job, parenting to a daughter age six, getting her into into the early years of school and studying a degree. I found that really hard. I wish I'd known that before. <laughs> but my social life and exercise are the two things that just literally had to be pushed to the side. <laughs> I think you can you can do more things, but I think you've got to accept you're not going to do them well, are you? I like that. It's really good advice. And what kind of pressures did you feel, if any, and how did you compartmentalise those pressures? I think mainly pressures because, as every young person knows, that question of what do you want to do with your life comes up all the time, not least from my parents who were, you've gone done this degree, at, you've gone to Cambridge University and you're talking about rowing? You know, what on earth do you think you're doing? What are you playing at? So I think you always have an element of, I need to have an answer to that question, and I still don't know. But to be honest, some of the best people I know are in their 40s, and they still don't really know what they want to do in life, you know? And I think this idea that as a 16-year-old, you'll have an answer to a career that's going to last you until you're 70, it's a fancy world. And also, I think you probably wouldn't be a very interesting person if at 16 you know what you're going to do, you know, until you retire. It's a really interesting point. We had some work experience students in over this summer, our academy recruits people, second careerists. And I think they that penny dropped for them because I think they were feeling under pressure. I need to choose a career. It needs to be the right career for the rest of my life. And then here we were recruiting second careerists and they were like, ah, this decision isn't forever. It doesn't have to be forever. So I think, yeah, I think those, those external pressures uh, are sometimes quite challenging. And um, so tell us about the degree. What was it you were studying? I was studying history. I was studying mainly medieval history. I did my dissertation on the Crusades. Wow. So quite niche. I loved it. It was around the time that Dan Brown wrote The Da Vinci Code, which was all about the military orders in the Crusades, which was precisely what I wrote my dissertation about. So I was able to poo-poo everyone reading it and saying, it's all untrue. I am the expert on the Knights Templar. Ask me everything you need to know. Don't read that rubbish from Dan Brown. Funnily enough, the public didn't agree and far more people bought his book than read my dissertation. I still quite under don't quite understand it. I'll read it if you want to send it to me. <laughs> Obviously, you enjoyed a huge amount of success in your rowing career, but one of the big themes that you cover in your public speaking and in your book is overcoming adversity. 
bouncing back from disappointment. Can you share a little insight into how you manage that? Yeah, so my rowing career in many ways was defined by one huge failure. Failure is a word that we don't like using so much, I think, in, in parlance, because it's, you know, it seems as something was to be fearful of and to be ashamed of. And um, so I was in a boat, we were the top-ranked boat on the British rowing team, and we were trying to be the first women to win Olympic gold for Great Britain in, in women's rowing. You know, they'd won, the men had won Olympic medals, obviously we'd won lots of Olympic golds in other sports, but women's rowing, we'd won silvers and bronzes, but never the gold. And our ambition was to be the first crew to win gold. And there was a, it was a four-man boat. Um, the, the crew won two world titles back-to-back. And I was selected into the crew and replaced somebody else. And we won a third world title back-to-back, which was, you know, amazing. My first senior medal, being a world champion, you know, it's pinch-yourself moment. And then, so we were going into the Olympic Games as reigning world champions, probably the favourites. And we didn't quite manage to do it. You know, it was a race we led for 75% of it. And then the home crew, the Chinese crew, came through us right at the end and we, we came away with a silver. And we were absolutely devastated. There's no two ways about it. We were absolutely destroyed by it. And it, yeah, in some ways that's kind of defined me. You know, that's defined that, that image of us on the podium in Floods of Tears is the image that comes up if people search for my name. And obviously now I'm a parent, I also look at it through my parents' eyes and just how distressing it would have been for them standing there in the, you know, the heat and humidity of Beijing you know, watching me sob my way through an Olympic medal ceremony, which is dreadful, isn't it? It's absolutely awful. And and I think after that, obviously, you, you reflect long and hard on, number one, as an athlete, you know, it was my job to win. Why didn't we win? What were the mistakes we made? But also, I think more globally, you know, it's not right. It's probably not good to be that devastated by an Olympic silver medal. So I think you reflect it as an athlete and you say you can identify the, the, the mistakes we made in the run-up to it. I think we would we didn't get the emotional temperature right. No, we were too committed to winning, and and I think that clouded our judgment to an to to an extent. I think we didn't quite have enough friction in the crew. I think we needed to have have had a few more arguments along the way to really kind of nail down some issues. And I think we would have had a better product at the end of it. And I think also just as a person, I do work extremely hard for things that I want. You know, I'm really committed to achieving what I want to achieve. And I think that was probably the first thing I'd really set my mind to that. I just failed at, I just didn't do it, you know, despite obviously working incredibly hard for it. So you, you spend so long trying to find the silver lining. And there are a lot of athletes who do get their silver lining. You know, lots of sports people have a big setback, change a few things, come back, and then they get their fairy tale ending. But the vast majority of people don't. And life isn't like that, is it? And actually, it's okay to say, yeah, that wasn't great. It was really disappointing. But life goes on. And actually not to find, you know, this kind of big moral message coming out of it. And I think sometimes when we fail, we're almost so obsessed with trying to find the positives. And I suppose I'm kind of talking myself into the positives, which that I think sometimes you just, you can't find a meaning to it. You know, it was really horrible. It was really tough to deal with. We really wanted to win, but we didn't. No one's died. Life goes on. And I think it just shows you that you don't always get what you want. And if you don't get what you want, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, it's okay. It's okay to fail doing something you you really believe in. It's okay to fail trying your absolute hardest. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. And your book, Mind Games, was published in 2019. And it won many plaudits for bringing to life the ways to maximise potential and delivering under pressure. Could you maybe talk us through that and any other key themes and insights that you covered in the book? Oh, do you know what? Mind Games was so much fun to write. Um, I'm a huge sports fan. Like a lot of people, I'm a total sports geek. And I had the opportunity to write the book. And I, 
I decided to base it on interviews with other athletes. So I basically rang every person in my network who works in sport or is an ex-athlete and said, can I talk to you about sport? This is also before really Zoom was a thing. So I just spent a lot of time traveling around the country and meeting people and interviewing them about how their brain works. Tell me about your hopes and dreams. Tell me about how you managed your emotions. And I remember sitting down with Goldie Sayers, the uh, javelin thrower, Olympic bronze medalist javelin thrower. And, and she talked me through her thought processes as she's running in to throw the javelin and told me all this insight about the world of throwing events in athletics, which is just so fascinating. You know, so I, I loved it. I absolutely loved that process. It was just so enjoyable. And then I had the opportunity, like I said, once I'd done all my interviews to then sit down and, and write the book and try and divide up all my material into chapters and try and understand how it would read and how, you know, the, the nuggets that people would most enjoy reading about. Also, at this point, I was pregnant, so I was very much aware there was a big life deadline that I had to finish the book by because after that, you know, all hell was going to break loose. So that very much focused my mind on getting the book done as early as possible. And then, yeah, you know, it came out and it was it was uh, it won the British Sports Book Awards in 2020, which was just, again, another proper pinch me moment. It was a great way for me to almost wrap up my sporting career, you know, to really comb through it to to share some unbelievable experiences that other people had had to shoehorn a few of my experiences in but just have the opportunity to quiz other other athletes about how their brain works and about you know their best moments in sport their worst moments in sport how have you built your resilience how have you developed teamwork skills I mean for a sports geek it was fascinating and luckily a few people enjoyed the book as well which is why it's done quite well um, I'm grinning from ear to ear because I, I can see that your passion, your energy in talking about that process. So how did that process begin? Was it your idea or did you have a book deal before you started? What was that all about? Right. This is going to sound really embarrassingly nepotistic and I apologise in advance, but I met somebody at a drinks party who was a publisher for Bloomsbury and then had a conversation with him. We went out for lunch, a few things, you know, rumbled on. And then I had a book contract before I'd even picked up a pen which I know is not the way it works for most people. I know most people write a manuscript, traipse it around hundreds of publishers. But no, for me, I already had a, you know, an advance and a contract signed before I started writing. Amazing. So what do you enjoy doing the most? Writing, speaking or coaching? And what do you find the most rewarding and why? Well, I currently have a career at a careers platform for elite athletes and my role is in marketing. So I have the opportunity to chat to loads of athletes who have come out of sport and come into every single career possible, including some of them here at St. James's Place as financial advisors, you know, which is an amazing opportunity for all of them. But also people who have set up their own microbreweries, people who have set up their own coffee roasteries, people who have gone into careers in, you know, banking, finance, law, sales, marketing and everything in between. Um, which, again, I feel really privileged. I just get to chat to sports people about what they've done and, and how they've done it. As, as an athlete, you come out of sport often with a virtually empty CV, but what life experience you have and what challenges have you faced? I find that aspect, aspect of it so interesting. Again, for people to explain to me, well, in my sport, this happens, and my sport, this happens. And I'm saying, okay, cool. So how does that relate to what you do now in the workplace? And certainly, so for example, in rowing, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you're lottery funded, you're on the rowing team and, and until you either drop dropped or, or or leave compared to football where it's not unusual for someone to have played for 20 clubs and I mean gosh how adaptable do you need to be different teammates different coaches different league 
different support staff, different environment, different team culture, different captain, and suddenly have to adapt to that. So every sport is so different and puts so many different psychological challenges on the people who do it. I guess it's my role in marketing and content to, to pick that out and then tell those stories. Fascinating. So let's dig into that a little bit more for you then. This is the point where we look at the light bulb moment when someone makes the switch in their own career to a new realm of success. So what was the biggest switch moment in your life and your career so far? And can you tell us how you got through the career transition and what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome? That's just one tiny question, isn't it? It's not so much in that. The biggest switch in my life, for sure, was retiring as an international rower to a life without any of that. And, and rowing is quite unique in that it's a, it's a sport people often come to quite late. I certainly didn't start rowing at all until I was 17, and then I didn't take it seriously until I was 19. So I already had a life. You know, I had an identity. I had a tot- totally normal teenage life, getting caught smoking at school and all that stuff you do when you're a teenager. Um, I had a degree from a fantastic university. So it wasn't like some sports where they're doing it since they were eight or nine or 10 or you know, kids in football academies from when they're 12, which I think is an even bigger transition. But for me to decide that I was retiring from the rowing team, it was a few weeks before my 30th birthday. Um, I'd been doing it for nine years, full-time, lottery funded. And I'd I'd done a few part-time degrees along the way, but I'd basically just been rowing for nine years. And of course, in any big life transition, things change you know everything about how you live how you view yourself your values your beliefs and everything change but in sport I think what's totally unique about sport is the fact it's a physical thing you are physically training every day so what does that mean that means you're burning a ton of calories so suddenly you go from probably doing five hours a day of intense exercise which is I couldn't even imagine doing that now but you know back then it was just normal that was just what I did so you do three sessions a day of about 90 minutes each, endurance or strength and conditioning. So for me, I was eating four to 5,000 calories a day. For a heavyweight man, it's more like five to 6,000 calories. You're drinking liters and liters and liters of fluid because you're sweating a lot. You need to sleep probably two hours more than a a normal 29-year-old. You're on drugs testing, uh, on a drugs testing regime, which is incredibly stressful. And the system we are under involved, you're having to submit one hour per day when you would be available for testing and if the tester turned up and you weren't where you said you were going to be for that hour that was a quote-unquote missed test three missed tests within 18 months was a two-year ban and a lifetime olympic ban so you imagine the stress of that the stress of complying with anti-doping was unbelievable i still occasionally have like a panic because i used to set my hours 10 p.m to 11 p.m at 9.45, I suddenly sometimes still have a panic of, oh God, have I submitted my whereabouts? Yes, Annie, you retired 11 years ago, it's fine. So that just the day-to-day of your lifestyle totally changes. And I think that was the thing I really struggled with in the short term is, and this sounds really almost infantile, but I would say to my friends, how much are you supposed to eat? What's a normal plate of food look like for a woman? Um, I know people say 1,500, 2,000 calories, but what's that look like? And also when you're training that hard every day, particularly in the, in the outside, you're hungry. And I didn't really feel hungry anymore. And I would say, how much alcohol is it okay to drink? Like what's a normal health, well not healthy, but what's a normal relationship for an adult with alcohol? Because I just didn't really ever drink that much. 
weekends. You never have weekends as an athlete. So I said to my partner, son, what do people do weekends? <laughs> you know, like, he's like, well, you go out on a Friday night and you go and see your parents roast on Sunday. I said, oh, right, great. Just the day-to-day lifestyle bit was the bit that I really struggled with. You know, your, your body composition changes because you're not lifting weights three times a week. And you particularly notice that more with the guys because obviously men carry more muscle mass than women. So some of the guys, you see them a year after they retired and you'd say, where have you gone? <laughs> you know, you've just shrunk. And so for me, it was definitely the lifestyle transition, not having that exercise in your life all day, every day, which determined everything about, you know, your energy levels, your endorphins, your social life, all this kind of stuff. You have to relearn it like you've just emerged from Mars, you know? It's fascinating. And what about the whole feeling of, you know, that has been your life for a decade or more and the fame that came with it. How did you cope with that transition? You go from being the centre of a lot of people's world to being the centre of no one's world. You go from a point where you have all these experts who are there to look after you and make you the best athlete you can be. So if I had a back injury in the morning at training, either that afternoon or the next morning, I'd be in Harley Street seeing an expert. I'm now get all my healthcare on the NHS and I can tell you <laughs> that's not the way it works. And if you needed, you know, a sports massage, you could go and see one of the best sports masseuses in the country. You'd get off the water after a session and you'd get objective feedback. You'd get your performance data, you'd get some numbers, you'd get video analysis from your coach and you'd have some verbal feedback as well. Well, when I finish a day at work now, no one gives me detailed feedback about how, I, how I've performed that day and how I can do better for the next day. So you do feel a bit lost, certainly, in the short term, because you, like I say, you don't feel like you've got a team of experts looking after you. What are the key traits that fueled your drive and sense of purpose throughout your career? The key motivators and drivers for me was I just wanted to be successful. I really wanted to win medals. You know, I wasn't doing it for the, the lottery funding. I wasn't doing it necessarily for the love of the sport. I was really motivated by being successful. You know, that's kind of like a, a, a fixed mindset view or I was just really obsessed with winning medals. But equally, international sport is incredibly hard. You know, it's incredibly brutal. It's ruthless. It's demanding. You've got the spectre of injury hanging over you all the time. You know, you, you put a, a few foot, feet, feet wrong or you get a few things wrong and trials and suddenly you can be, you know, the cards all shuffle and you'll be at the bottom of the pack rather than at the top. Um, so it's a, it's a really stressful existence. And I was really focused on, I'm, I'm not here for a good time. I'm, I'm here to, to try and be successful and do something no one else can do. And it, it is addictive. Being the best in the world at something is incredibly addictive. And once you've done, and before you've done it, you're desperate to do it. And then once you've done it once, you're desperate to do it again. And the other thing to say is that you're not doing something that's miles out of your reach. You're doing something that's, yeah, it's hard. You might have never done it before, but it's, it's just above your head. You know, if someone said to me now, can you, I don't know, can you teach a French lesson to 30 kids? I'd be terrified because I wouldn't even have an idea of where to start. And that feels like it's totally out of my capabilities and knowledge. But when you're in a, you know, elite sports team and you're trying to win medals, it's not a million miles away from, from where you are. And so I think it is, it's just addictive, that sense of progress, that sense of getting better. Once you reach a certain level, having that feeling of, I know what I'm doing. I've got a real sense of control here. I know what good rowing feels like. I know, you know, the, the pieces of jigsaw I need to put in place. And if I can do all that, maybe I can produce this unbelievable performance. So it is that buzz as well of 
when you do get it right, it's phenomenal. And that's addictive. I can imagine. I can only imagine. <laughs> well, if, you read, if you read my book, you'll know all about it. Absolutely. And what would you say to people listening who might be on the verge of a career change in their lives or in their careers? What key things have you learned from your experiences as an elite athlete, as a comms professional, as a leadership coach and as an author? And how has this influenced your personal professional points of view? I think in any big life transition, you've got to be brave about it. You've got to have courage. Sport, and I can only talk about the transition out of sport, but sport is really simple. Okay, it's this really defined, it's like a perfect story. It's got a beginning, it's got a middle and it's got an end. Life isn't like that. Life is really complicated. And once you have a family, everything becomes far more complicated. So sport is a really simple environment to be in. It, like I've said, it, it's very addictive once you're in it and you, and you know how to be good at it. You're at a certain level. And stepping outside of that is terrifying. Obviously, first of all, you know, you, you, you lose your income, which is which is significant. So you suddenly have to think, well, where's my where's my paycheck going to come from next month? But also, it's so defined. You know exactly what you're doing every hour of the day. And, and, and you have all these experts there to look after you and nurture you. So life is really laid out for you. And within that, you have a 12-month cycle where you're building up to the World Championships within a four-year cycle where you're building up to the Olympic Games. So it's so defined and it's so clear and you step out of that and it's like you've stepped out of a classroom into just this grey morass of confusion. You've got no pathway. You've got no way of defining your success. You've got no um, obvious next step to go to. And suddenly it's both exciting because, you know, the world is open to you again, but it's also terrifying. And I certainly had a more than one night where I'd wake up in the first few years after I retired just thinking what am I doing I've got no direction I've got no purpose I've got no mission what am I doing with my life and then you'd wake up in the morning and you'd think oh I had that really strange dream last night <laughs> you know but it is terrifying and it's really tempting to go back again and I think you have to have well for me just a lot of courage to say I'm not going back I am retiring is I am retiring for the right reasons my partner had also gone through a big life transition as well. Um, he was a corporate lawyer and he'd left that to become a climate scientist. So he was very much, I had the same, you know, you doubt yourself, but I made the right life change. You have to stay on this course. This is the right thing for you. Going back to rowing is the easy option because it's familiar. Have courage, you know, back yourself in this new life. It is the right thing to do. Wow. And just talk me through as well, being the very best of your game in competitive sport, elite sport, you have to be 100% focused on that outcome. You can't have one eye somewhere else on your future career, I'm imagining. So now you help other athletes transition from sport and we're trying to help them think about this earlier maybe because of that sort of cliff edge, if you like. So I was doing this, I had everything mapped out for me, I had my earnings mapped out for me, my time mapped out for me and suddenly that's not here. Trying to make that transition a bit smoother. But how does that work in elite sport? Because my opinion of it needs, my thought about it is you have to be 100% focused. So when can someone start to think about that? You have to be 100% focused on your sport, but every sporting career finishes. And actually a lot of athletes will say, I mean, obviously for, for women, it's extremely hard to have a family while you're competing. But obviously for men, you're not the one literally having the baby. So a lot of men will say, once I had children, actually I became a better athlete because I wasn't as totally single focus on what I was doing. And I wasn't just rugby, rugby, rugby. I would, would come home and totally forget about the rugby. 
and we would give uh, at laps life after professional sport we would give the same advice to any athlete have a plan b it can take the pressure off your career because actually if everything's going well in sport you know you're great you're on top of the world but it's never going to go swimmingly you will have injuries you will be dropped you will have contract disputes you will have a period where you're just not being selected for the team and actually if you have this other part of your life that you're either planning or just thinking about it can just make you more resilient because you're not putting all your eggs in one basket and like I said we would say it's better to have a plan b and not use it than not have a plan b and then need it I love that. So how prepared did you feel for the change um, or taking things to the next level? What do you call on the most or rely on in your own character and mindset? I think at the time, I, f- I felt pretty ready to move on from rowing. I was almost certainly going to retire after the, my second Olympics. I mean, the way I saw it is I was about to turn 30. I'd done two full Olympic cycles as an elite athlete. It was a home Olympics. It was 2012 games. So it felt like it was it was a natural pause. But also... For me, when I went into my first Olympic cycle, I had a certain set of questions I wanted to answer. After that first Games, you know, you kind of recover and recoup. And I thought, actually, yeah, I've got some other questions I want to I want to find out. And then after my second Olympics, I thought, actually, this I've kind of answered everything I wanted to know. I've, I've pushed myself as far as I think I'm going to go. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready for the next step. You always reflect back on that. You think, well, that was then. This is now. And certainly when I went to write the book, that was just a huge privilege and and really exciting. But I've always tried to be quite focused in my post-rowing career in the same way I was when I was rowing. You know, what? why am I doing this? What What's in it for me, long-term, short-term? And how does this fit in with my values? Now I have kids, my values have changed. You know, your life priorities change. And I think, you know, I'm not an island. I'm not just a, you know, a single-minded rower anymore. I've got all these other people to look after and people to consider so I think you've always got to have that vision of how I want my life to be do I want to be self-employed do I want to be employed do I want to work full-time part-time and I think it has to fit in with the rest of your life in the same way that there's no way you'd have a personal relationship with somebody who didn't share your values your work has to share your values I mean I say to every athlete that retires what do you want your life to be like in the same way you would never enter a romantic relationship with somebody who's completely different with you. You've got to have a workplace relationship that fits with how you want it to be. Otherwise, you will never be happy. I think that's such good advice. Thank you. Um, So you published your book on the psychology of performance and success and you speak to people about those themes and and, uh, other moments in your life at events. And there are countless testimonials to back it up. But what made you feel confident in your unique perspective and to bring that value to others? I think there's people who are really good at doing it and there's people who are really good at talking about it. And I like to think that I'm, you know, and I think part of writing the book was that I wanted to bring people into that world of elite sports. So when they sit there and they watch Wimbledon and they see, I don't know, somebody fluff championship point on the on their serve, having served like an absolute dream the whole way through the game, I want to be able to understand what might have happened in their head to create that. In the same way when you see a David and Goliath performance at, you know, at the Football World Cup or the Rugby World Cup, I wanted people to think they kind of understood why it might have been happening. So I think I've always been interested in seeing sport from the external side. And certainly, I think the psychology of sport is something I really had to learn. I think I was terrible at the psychology side when I started and I had to almost learn it from scratch. If you've struggled at something, it then makes you far better to explain it to other people. So I love talking about the psychology of sport and trying to explain it to people who have never experienced that. 
And I just think, you know, sport isn't an island. There's so many parallels between what we do in sport, what we do in the workplace, what we do elsewhere in life. And I love trying to find ways to make it relevant to people. You said something interesting earlier, Annie, in that you come out with a blank CV. So it's mm. like, let's like delve into like, actually, you might have a feel like it's a blank CV, but you've got so many traits. So what do you see coming from sport as specific transferable skills or mindset that people can bring to a new professional setting? There's obviously there's there's so many transferable skills out, out of sport. And I, I believe that so passionately. Um, and I think you get employers who, for whatever reason, you know, they're not into sport and they, you know, they kind of look down their nose a bit. People who've done sport at the highest level. And I think you've got footballers who've taken a penalty in front of 40,000 people in a major stadium. I mean, you can't tell me that's not a level of pressure that 99.9% of the people have never experienced. And not only have they come through that, they've they've thrived. You know, they've scored that penalty or maybe they've missed that penalty, but they've learned an, an amazing lesson from that experience. Because what you get in sport, which you don't get in life and you rarely get in the workplace, you get immediate feedback. For example, if I, I don't know, had a bad night's sleep, the next morning, all of my training scores, all of my performance data would be down. So I now know from a health perspective how critical sleep is. Whereas somebody around, you know, here in the city of London, they might, oh, I'll just have a coffee, an extra coffee on the way to work. I can, you know, I can push on through the day, I'll be fine. Whereas I know for a fact, you know, this is a health question. And I can tell you because as an athlete, you have your scores, you know, particularly on a rowing machine, right there in front of you. And because you get this immediate feedback, it changes everything about how you approach that next challenge because you know what works and what, what doesn't work, you know? And I mean, I remember racing early in my career at the world championships and we were both whereas in a two-person boat we were both really young we didn't really know what we were doing we were very powerful but we didn't really know what to do with all that power you know it's a bit like two bulls in a boat in some ways we were very enthusiastic and at the world championships that year the, the weather was was very adverse rowing's an outdoor sport that's part of the game but challenging weather conditions is something which for inexperienced people is more of an issue than if you've been doing it for a few years and we missed out on a medal by a photo finish, so we came fourth. And fourth, people say it's the worst position in the world, and it is the worst position in the world, particularly in Rome, where it's a six-boat race. So half the crew go and get their medals, half of the crews turn around and go home, you know, feeling sad. And I, it's one of those real, like, sliding doors moments, I think, where, you know, after that race, we changed so much, the two of us. We said we missed out by, I think it was 0.3 of a second. My teammate would know. She remembers everything about every race she's ever done, but... It wasn't much. And afterwards, we changed everything because it was like this big, biggest wake-up call. This is a race that we, we could have won a medal. We should have won a medal. But, you know, we made 10 serious mistakes either on the day or in the lead-up to the day. So then you go away and you break down those 10 serious mistakes and you're like, okay, so what could I have done differently? And you analyse everything about technically how you're rowing, how as a crew we were talking to each other, um, how we built up for that day... You know, even down to things like, I remember she loved racing. That was a real big thing for her. And I used to get really nervous around racing. So even things like that, we'd never had that conversation where I'd say, look, I'm absolutely terrified. I'm, I'm going to control my nerves, but I'm not happy right now. Whereas she was, that was her happy place. She said, I love racing. Training's so boring. Racing's great. And I'd be saying, I love training. It's not boring at all, but I'm terrified of racing. So things like that, we just realised we'd never had these conversations. And I think had we been... 0.3 of a second faster and got a medal of that race, it just would have papered over all of those cracks. We would never have gone into that granular level of detail about how we were performing. But I think the biggest learning from that particular experience 
was afterwards I, we said to each other we didn't believe we could have we could win we didn't believe we could get a silver or a bronze and I think had we done it it just would have been a massive surprise and again it would have given us this false sense of you know competence that we didn't have and I think in the workplace you very rarely get those moments where you must draw a line in the sand and you analyze everything both macro and micro level and going back and saying well, if we didn't believe we we could win, what do we need to do to put ourselves in a position where in 12 months' time, the World Championships rolls around again? How are we going to make sure we, we do actually sit on the starting line thinking we know we can win and we know how we're going to win? So there has to be that trust and belief underpinning it, but you've got to have a plan, you know, because belief without a plan is just hot air. So I think in sport, you have the capacity to analyse your strategy, but you also ask these quite, big emotional questions of yourself you know am I confident in myself as a leader for example am I confident in myself in a competitive situation do I really trust my teammates whereas I think in the workplace you don't necessarily get those moments when you're exposed so I think in sport you then when you go into the workplace you're happy to have these moments where you hammer out every detail and you challenge people and you have difficult conversations and you argue with each other because you have to get everything on the table in order to get better and improve you know and I think you have that ability because you've been tested so a couple of things you've mentioned Annie I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask you a few more questions about I absolutely agree with all of that and I think it's fascinating listening to you with the level and depth that a professional athlete goes to to just make that marginal gain it's it's absolutely fascinating so I think one of the key transferable skills that professional sports people come with is the fact that they are coachable they are used to taking on feedback. They are used to trying new things to get different outcomes. That is so valuable, particularly if you're coming into SJP as an example. Many people are starting their own business. They've never done that before. But there are lots of experts here that can help, like those sports coaches, and they can give you that feedback. So I think that's a really key transferable skill. And then the second thing you said throughout the interview that I'm going to ask you a bit more about now is that feedback loop. So in professional sports, you had it after every single day, after every single training session and you mentioned in now in daily work you don't have somebody giving you that feedback so do you create it for yourself is that something you've brought with you I think when I first transitioned to the workplace I would get really frustrated and I would feel like no one would be honest with you um, or people would ghost you which is one of my huge bugbears in life you know people don't like to deliver bad news so they just ignore your emails uh, uh, yeah I, I certainly struggled straight away with just this lack of feedback and just feeling like a you know, no one, no one cares about me. No one's nurturing me. You know, I want to have my coach. I can phone up and have a long conversation just about me and just about how I can get better. But then, obviously, you realise that's that's part of being an adult in a way. That's part of growing up and just finding your own ways to feedback. But I certainly try to set parameters for myself now in in the quality of what I'm doing because you're not going to get those outcomes you get in sport. You're not competing week to week. You know, you're not competing at the Olympic Games. You're not, you know, in rowing, everything's monitored on the rowing machine. So you're not doing a 2000 meter ergo test on the rowing machine and having that as this kind of black and white benchmark. Thankfully, because they are horrible and I do not miss doing a 2000 meter rowing machine test at all. So I would always, I always try now in the work I do to set myself like a process benchmark, almost setting my own standards to monitor myself against. Because, yeah, you have KPIs in the workplace, but I, I don't think, you know, kind of workplaces come and go. I think you've got to have your own standards. And certainly in sport, you know, opponents come and go. You've always got to have your own standards, your own values, your own ways of doing things. 
whether it's your teammates that you're bouncing ideas off, whether it's just ideas you've come up with yourself, I think you've got to know what your benchmark is in terms of your processes. I love that. So thinking about our listeners then, some of them might be thinking about something significant in their lives that they want to change. And I think a common fear can be fear of the unknown. So any tips for our listeners in terms of building their skills, ready for that change? Yeah, fear of the unknown is massive and and sport is such a, you know, it's such a closed circuit that it's the the outside is even more unknown. But equally, it is really exciting and you do have a lot more freedom and people are a lot nicer in the outside world. You know, sport is so brutal, particularly in professional sports like football or rugby. You know, you're just you're one of thousands, you know, and if you don't quite fit the mould you're looking they're looking for, you'll be gone. You'll be sold to another club or you'll be out of contract. And in the outside world, you always have other options. You know, in, in, in Olympic sport particularly, there's, there's no other Olympics. If you fail to win a medal or you fail to achieve what you want to achieve at an Olympic Games, you're either, you, you wait four years, you might not qualify for the next one, you might be injured, and then you've missed that chance again and, and that's it. Potentially, you, you might never get another chance. Whereas in the workplace, you always have other options. You can always pivot sideways, you can join a different firm, you can find a new career... But I think what I always try to comfort myself with is in sport, the margins are so small. You know, they're, they're tiny. I mean, the number of times I would win and lose on a photo finish. And you think, well, that's, but that's just the reality of it. And that's just the thing you've got to be comfortable with. And I remember having a conversation with Michael Atherton once, the cricket, England cricket captain. And he said, cricketers just have to deal with luck. He said, you know, as a batsman, you get dropped on one and you go on and you make a hundred. Or you just, you know, you're in the field, you just miss a catch. And then that batsman goes on and wins wins that match for his or her team. And he said, really early on, you just hold your hands up and you say, sometimes, you know, Lady Luck is with me and sometimes she's against me. You just have to roll with it. But you just have to keep telling yourself, I can only be as good as I can be. And so much of what I do is going to be out of my hands. And you just have to be comfortable with that. You know, I'd love to have finished my career as an Olympic champion, but I didn't. Do I beat myself up against it, about it? No, I, I was as good as I could have been. You know, Lady Luck wasn't with me at the time I needed her. And that's life. I think it's that old saying, you reach for the moon and sometimes you, you reach the stars. And, and I just think listening to you speaking, resilience is the word that keeps bringing to mind. And I hope, I'm, I'm sure you're extremely inspiring to our listeners with just the level of resilience that you have. So as somebody enjoying success in your new career path, you've also mentioned being a parent and your personal values. What does success mean for you now? What does it look like? I think success for me is I love the fact I have a career that enables me to do lots of different things. I am quite a magpie, so I like juggling lots of different balls. I have an um, employed career and I also have a self-employed portfolio career. And I love the fact that, you know, I have a team and I'm part of an organisation, but I also have to go out and get my own work in and, you know, kind of fly by the seat of my pants a bit more. And I love having having those those two parallel careers um and I've also got like I said I've got some lovely kids I live in Cornwall which is just a beautiful part of the country and you know I want to practice my hobbies and balance my career and see my kids as much as possible so those are my values and that for me if I can tick all of those boxes that's what success looks like Annie thank you so much for joining us today it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you um do you have any events or talks coming up soon or would you like to share how people contact you um, I'm on LinkedIn and that's it because I'm old and I don't um, I don't cover myself all over social media. Brilliant. Well, we will all connect with you on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. No problem at all. Mm-hmm.
we just record our latest episode of The Switch, Mind Over Matter with Annie Vernon. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Spotify and follow us. Thank you.